So we're together now to read the Word of God. We're going to read two short portions. First of all, in the Old Testament, in the prophecy of Zechariah, and in chapter number 13. Zechariah, the second last book in the Old Testament, verse, chapter 13, at verse number 7. There's a chapter that speaks to us of the suffering of the Lord Jesus on the cross and also the testing and the trial of the people of God, the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be kept alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Then we turn to the New Testament and to the letter of James, and in chapter 1, and at the beginning of that chapter, James chapter 1, and at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the no doubt is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. And so on is the word of God with us that we bless to us these readings from it. Turn out to praise God this time in Psalm 66 and sing Psalms. And at verse number 8, Psalm 66. On page 83 and at verse number 8. O peoples, praise our God. This praise and song repeat. He has preserved our soul alive from slipping, kept out feet. From verse 8. Uh, to the verse Mark 13 to God's praise. Oh, uh-huh. 
turn now to the first letter of Peter and in chapter 1 we want to continue our study of this letter. First Peter 1 and we're going to read verses 6 to 9. First Peter 1 at verse number 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so on. As we do continue to enter into this letter of Peter, we are still looking at uh, verses 1 to 12, which are basically the introduction of the letter uh, and the way in which uh, Peter introduces the main themes of the letter in this introduction. Uh, And we saw uh, last week in verses 3 to 5 the way in which he uh, assures them of their real identity as the children of God. It's so often to uh, understand who we are in the very first place. No matter what we are going through in life, our identity is important. We should never lose sight of who we are. Also, we should never lose sight of where we have come from. And as we read these verses, Peter makes it quite clear that they are the children of God and that they have come from uh, being where they were, scattered. They have come to be the children of God by the grace of God. Who are they? They are the children of God. Where have they come from? They have come from the saving work of the Spirit of God in their lives. And the third thing that he has made clear to them in that year, that is, why are you here? And he explains to them that they are here for the very reason that God has chosen them and in God's purposes. And for ourselves today, these three things are fundamental to the way that we live our lives and if we understand these three issues in life, then it would, uh, it would help us to understand the things that meet with us along life's way. And so, in verse 6, it is as, as if Peter moves from looking at, at the ideal situation and looking at who they are in, 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 as a children of God to begin now to face the reality of life. And that's basically where we're at. Every day of our lives, we have to rise in the morning and we have to face the reality of life. And we have to do that as the children of God. And how we do that is always challenging. And so, in the second part of this introduction, Peter moves on to to focus on the way in which he understands the reality of their lives and to focus in on the way in which they must understand that reality as well. And so from these verses 6 to 9, we want to to look at Christian joy in the crucible of faith. I want to see, first of all, that there is an interruption. And the interruption is with regard to their joy. Our lives are so often, and the life of, of our generation and of society is taken up with a pursuit of joy. 
and thinking that we will find that, and once we find that, that we will be satisfied in it. And in verse 6, Peter goes on to, to speak about, in this you rejoice. A very simple introductory statement where he speaks about joy. And it's a joy that they have constantly, and it's a joy that belongs especially to the coming promised salvation. When he says that they are rejoicing, he makes it clear that they are rejoicing in this. And the in this, the reference is to the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Because of the very fact that they are the children of God, the joy that they have in their hearts is a joy that is so much taken up with where their journey is going to take them and to the prospect of entering into the fullness of God's salvation. They are rejoicing. And we see something of the way in which this joy is connected with God fulfilling what he has promised to do. When we read about the encounter of Mary and Elizabeth, when Mary tells Elizabeth the news that she was going to bear a child who was going to be Jesus, the Son of God. And the child in Elizabeth's womb leapt in her womb with the joy of the news of God coming to do this great thing in the experience of the world. And so this joy here is similar, but the great thing that the joy is, is looking at, yes, it understands the joy and the coming of Jesus, but especially it's looking at the joy that arises from the fact that we are looking forward to the return of Christ and to the perfection of joy and to the removal of all the things that trouble us here in this world. And it's wonderful for us today if, if we ourselves can and are able to have something of that joy that our hearts aren't so filled up with other things, there's no space for the joy of God's salvation. Today, even if our hearts were half filled with this joy, with everything else, then what a blessing that would be. It's the joy that comes from our hope of salvation. C.S. Lewis, in writing, the book Surprised by Joy, which was the shape of his early life, said about joy, all joy reminds. It is never a possession. It's always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. And that's the nature of joy. Joy isn't something that we have in isolation. It reminds. It reminds us of what God has done to make them the children of God. It reminds us what God is going to do, that he's going to send his son back into the world. We have joy because joy reminds and because it gives to us a sense of hope in God's salvation. And it is with regard to that very same joy that we now have an interruption and we have an interruption because it is necessary. Why should it be necessary 
to interrupt Christian joy. And here Peter is saying, though now for a little while, if necessary. And the, the best interpretation of that is that since it is necessary in the plan of God that things must be different and other things must be in place. And in this case, it is necessary in God's plan that you have been grieved by various trials. Joy has been overtaken by sorrow. Sorrow has displaced joy. And that has happened because of various trials, of multicolored trials, so many of them. And they are so varied that Peter would not dare begin to list them because that would restrict everything that God is doing to the list that Peter would provide. They are multicolored trials moments of testing that come into life because of the purpose of God and that when they do come in they so often tend to interrupt our joy and to fill our hearts with sorrow. And we do have to make a distinction between testing and temptation. Temptation is appealing to us to yield, to give over to a sinful desire. Testing is to ensure that something can stand the strain. And these distinctions are, are difficult to, to bear in mind in our everyday living. But, but here are trials and they are testings to see if you and I will stand the strain of encountering things in life that we did not expect to be there. And so often that's what happens in our lives. We're going a, a long life's way and there are interruptions because of what happens in our homes, in our families, in our community, in our workplace, in our own hearts and lives. Things surprise us. If C.S. Lewis is surprised by joy, we are surprised so often by sorrow, the sorrow that's caused from the things that we did not expect, the things that we would not choose, but they are here because God is saying it is necessary for you to experience this very moment to see if you can stand the strain and to see if you can continue to live as the child of God. And every one of us has at some point experienced something of that. Like a bolt from the blue, something happens it knocks us for six. We are, we are, we are blown away in our faith and, and in our living. And we are, we are having to try and lift ourselves up and try and rebuild ourselves because we have been so crushed by what has happened in our lives. The interruption. Do you recognize it? If you, if you know joy 
for sure he will know the experience of that joy being interrupted and being interrupted in a way that's surprising and in that that very interruption God is taking you to uncharted waters and taking you to places that there seems to be no direction in it and feeling lost like a ship in a storm that has lost its course and doesn't know where it is going. The interruption. Secondly, there is the intention. And the intention is important. Why are you doing this? You may say to someone. Why are you doing this? You may even say to God at times. There is an intention. There is a plan. And the the, the intention is so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The tested genuineness of your faith. And the picture is that there seems to be something. And this test is to prove that what appears to be the case is in actual fact genuine. That's important in so many areas of life. We can give the impression of, of, of knowing it all and being in control of certain things, but the test will come to prove whether that is actually the case and whether we're actually qualified to do what we should be doing. And that's so important for you and for me today. What is important is not what seems to be the case. And you can look across today and look at other people. And other people can look at you. And there seems to be faith. There seems to be trust in the Lord Jesus. There seems to be a desire for Jesus. That's the impression that's there. And that's so good. It's so good that we can see that in others and we can see that in ourselves. It's so encouraging and so uplifting that we can see that it seems to be the case that people are believing in the Lord Jesus. But that's not enough. And it's not enough because God doesn't know. That's never the case. He doesn't come to test you to, so that he will learn if, if you really have genuine faith. But he comes to test you, to show you that you have faith. And isn't that wonderful? That all that he does in what you think is to interrupt your joy is actually for your benefit. It's actually to give you the assurance that you have faith in him. And by doing so, to establish joy in your heart on the grounds of the way in which you have learned through that very testing that what you have is actual, genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. And that whole process that we see in in these verses is the way in which he speaks about your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes 
though it is tested by fire. There's a crucible, there's a furnace. And into that furnace goes your faith and goes my faith. And the gold goes into the furnace to remove all the impurities so that the gold shines and the temperature has to be accurate. The time in the furnace has to be measured accurately. It's a process that takes expertise and professionalism and at the end of the day there is produced the gold that is purified. And so it is with your faith. What you saw as an interruption was God engaging in this process to remove the impurities of your faith and of mine and to do so in a measured way, to do so in a deliberate way because of his own intention. And more precious than the gold that perishes Gold is precious, and all of this effort is made to prove its genuineness. But gold will perish. But your faith, which will never perish, goes through a similar process, and it comes out on the other side of it with the proof that it is indeed genuine. And we should be so thankful today that God in his wisdom weaves things into life that we wouldn't choose, threads that we wouldn't choose ourselves. He weaves things into our lives and does so to enrich the tapestry and to make faith shine in our lives and show its gold and its beauty something that is firmly fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in Zechariah chapter 13 the outcome of that special process. Zechariah tells him that he will, the third part will, will, will go through the fire. They shall be tried like gold. They will go through the furnace. And the outcome is they shall call upon my name and I will answer them. What a benefit. What a profit. What an outcome. And then he goes on to say, I will say, they are my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. Do you see the outcome? Do you see the, the way in which it, it enriches the relationship that the Christian has with, with the Lord Jesus as their saviour. So the very thing that, that they thought was an interruption to their progress and to their life as the children of God is in actual fact the very thing that enriched it and reinforced God's grace in their lives and gave to them that sense of assurance of faith in the Lord Jesus. And his intention for them goes beyond that. 
great to have that reaffirmation today. But he's looking beyond where you and I are today. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not so much that you're encouraging your faith today, and that's important, but the second and overriding element seems to be that in the day of the revelation of Christ, when Christ returns into the world, that, that your faith will result in praise and glory and honour. And we can ask, whose praise and glory and honour? Ultimately, everything about our salvation is to the praise and glory and honour of God himself. He has all the glory in our salvation. But there is also the sense of vindication that the children of God themselves, because of their faith and their steadfastness and their continuing to believe, that that faith will result in praise and glory and honour, where God will recognise your faith and where God will honour you because of your faith and where God will give glory to you because of your faith. And this Paul in Romans 8 not just capture that, that we shall be glorified with him if we suffer with him. And so the, the double intentions is so warming and so encouraging. I just want to, to allow us to think about the beauty of the way in which the reality of life God has this purpose for you and for me, wanting you to know that your faith is genuine and wanting you to stand at the judgment seat of Christ when Christ returns and there to be honoured because of your faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. The intention. And thirdly, there is inspiration there are people who inspire us we might be trudging along life's way and we might meet with someone and, and have a conversation with someone and you, you come away and you just feel energised and, and inspired suddenly life has changed and the whole your whole experience has turned around and, and you feel ready to do whatever it takes so special to be inspired. And that's what we see in, in verses number 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. One of the challenges of life, even when, when faith is proved to be genuine and we have that assurance of faith, one of the challenges of life is that the person we loved most, or love most, we cannot see them. That's painful. 
we lose those whom we loved, we cannot see them again, and it's painful. Their present is gone. They're in our minds, but physically they're not present. And here's a situation where there's real, genuine love that draws the cords of our hearts with a love so intense that it surpasses every other kind of love. And it is remarkable in the first case because we have never seen the Lord Jesus whom we love. That's challenging. If we truly love him, we want to see him because we know that our joy will not be complete until we see him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. It's that wholehearted, life-giving, self-sacrificing way in which we give ourselves longing to see the person who is currently invisible. You rejoice, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It goes back to the same joy that you have in verse number 6. Joy frames the whole passage. It's a joy that is focused in particular on the return of the Lord Jesus. Joy reminds, as we heard from C.S. Lewis, and joy here reminds us of the things that are about to be. And one of the things that are, that's about to take place is that we're going to see the Lord Jesus as he is. And if we are surprised by joy, we will be surprised by seeing. No matter how we have imagined what Jesus will look like when we see him, he will look so vastly different, thankfully. He will be so filled with glory and so filled with beauty and our joy is looking about what's about to be when we shall see him. And the nature of the joy now becomes something that words cannot describe. And the more we descend into the depths of our love for the Lord Jesus, the more we rise up in, in the assurance of that love, the more we will begin to realize that words fail us. And words can be replaced by tears. Words can be replaced by silence. Words can be replaced by, by what goes on in our minds, in our meditation. The joy is inexpressible because it is full of glory. That is, our cup of joy is dependent not on what happens today, it's filled from, from the day of Christ and his return. And that glory fills our cup and that establishes our joy. It's a joy that's inexpressible. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All joy reminds it is never a possession, 
It is always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. And where is where does your own pursuit of joy take you today? Where do you think you're going to fill up that cup of joy in this life? There are so many messages going around in life that will try and persuade you and me that that joy is going to be found anywhere but in the Lord Jesus. Anywhere else will do as far as the devil is concerned. And he will distract and he will tempt and he will try and persuade us to give ourselves to, to the sins that separate us from the real joy that we have in him. But those who are the genuine children of God, that underlying magnetic force of his love for us draws us to him and draws us through and draws us out of and brings us on in the uncharted waters of our journey through this life and through the crucible of faith to our last come to see him, to be glorified with him, to be raised in honour and in praise and in glory because of his faithfulness to us. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we do rejoice in you and in your work. How great a God you are. The marvel, the wonder, the wisdom of the way in which you work in our lives as you already worked in the person of your Son to be our Saviour. Bless us in sharing in that great salvation. Bless us in our, in our thinking about it. Bless us in our hearing about it. Bless in our hearts so that we may embrace and, and love and have joy in you day by day and to be reminded that the day will come when we shall see you and when we shall be glorified with you. Bless you, Lord, we pray and go before us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Closing psalm is psalm number 34 in Sing Psalms, and we're singing at verse number 15. It's on page 41. Psalm number 34 on page 41 at verse 15. The Lord's eyes are upon the just. He listens to their plea. The wicked he rejects and blots from earth their memory. From verse 15 to the end of the psalm, to God's praise. The Lord's eyes are
stand for the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.